0: It was almost like too big to fail and too small to care.
1: This is the Van School Podcast. Welcome back to the podcast. I'm glad you're here. Each week on this show, I try and interview an expert to discover what it is that they know about a subject that we could learn from. And I also try and find out how did they develop the discipline to get where they are at in their career. This week's interview was with a woman named Rita Cooster, who's the chief credit officer of St. Louis Bank, where I am a member of the board of directors. But I'd never actually had a chance to sit down with Rita and hear her biography and how that informs decisions she makes at the bank. She'll talk about being a banker's banker and even working for the Federal Reserve, but later in the conversation, when we start talking about things like too big to fail and Wall Street versus Main Street, you can hear how this experience allows her to have a perspective that you don't hear very often. We also get into uh, what goes on behind the scenes. How does a bank make a decision as to whether or not to grant a loan to someone? And she also gets into the conversation around how do you create the tension within a boardroom to get people to have the conversations they need to have and be willing to disagree with one another. This was very interesting and an unusual interview for a banker. I was quite pleased with how it went and learned quite a bit. So I hope you will buckle in and enjoy the conversation with Rita Cooster of St. Louis Bank. Rita Cooster, welcome to the podcast.
0: Thank you, Vance.
1: So we have known each other for about a year and a half Mm -hmm. um, because you are the chief risk officer. Is that right?
0: Chief credit officer. Chief
1: credit officer. But your job is to mitigate risk at a bank.
0: That's part of it, yes.
1: Part of it. So, yeah. what does it mean to mitigate risk?
0: Um, you know, on the I'm primarily on the lending side, but uh, as a bank as a whole, there's all kinds of risk. Whether it's uh, compliance risk, credit risk, uh, liquidity risk, reputational risk. Um, I primarily, like I said, is are on the uh, credit side of it, and. What that means is on the lending side. So what I'm trying to do is make sure we make right loan decisions or good loan decisions to ensure that we basically get get our money back and that the borrower gets what they need as far as financing. Um, Because I'm in a community bank, which is smaller, you tend to get involved in different risk. And so um, while... It's not as broad as a total risk officer. There's definitely pieces of it that all of us have to deal with because we're in a bank that small.
1: So maybe um, just to put it in the simplest terms possible, mm-hmm. there's a person that goes out and finds somebody that wants to borrow money, Correct. the loan officer, yep. and they get excited about the loan and yep. they're, they're pumped up. They found a person that really wants their help and then they write it up in a package and they bring it to your department mm-hmm. and they say, I think we should give this person money. And your job is to say,
0: mm, maybe not. <laughs> Sometimes. I mean, I don't, you don't want to go into it saying, as a, on the credit side, saying, I want to say no, no, no. You know, there are times where maybe you structure it different to get you comfortable, or you get more collateral to get you comfortable. So um, I'm, I don't want to be like a Dr. No. You want to be um, make the right decisions and see if you can make the deal. But I don't think us making a deal every time helps a borrower sometimes no is the best answer for a borrower because they might think you know their idea is the best they might think you know this is going to work and we see things that are like oh you know maybe you don't want to do that maybe you maybe you want to revisit it at a different time so um like i said i don't we we try to do it but we try to make sure it's right for the bank and right for the borrower
1: so you have an interesting background because you're not just the uh, no, 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 or Correct. finding the right. But uh, you actually started out as a, as a regulator.
0: Um, I didn't start out as a regulator. I worked at a bank, um, and it was a specialty bank. And maybe that's where I, I'm so closely tied to community banking. I started at a bank in uh, Jefferson City, Missouri, that was a banker's bank. And what that meant was we were owned by... Other banks. It was kind of a co-op, I uh-huh. guess, and collectively it was all small community banks that that um, you know worked with this bank to get some of their services. So I worked in Jefferson City for this Bankers Bank, um, and there was only at the time there was only like 19 of them in the nation. It was a correspondent bank, and um, um, after that, because I had done so much bank work. I actually moved to St. Louis and got a job um, with the Federal Reserve here and was on the regulatory side. So I was a bank examiner after that. So
1: So does that mean you were the person that showed up in the black SUVs (laughs) when something had gone horribly wrong? Uh,
0: You know, fortunately, or maybe unfortunately, um, there wasn't a lot of problem banks at the time I was a regulator. So um, I would have been maybe that person, but uh, we didn't have... You know, I wasn't a regulator during the banking crisis uh, when all the banks were closing. I was, um, you know, it it was a smoother time then, but we definitely, we showed up at banks on a Monday with our audit bags and, um, you know, took a look at all kinds of stuff. And, you know, normally because we were in smaller banks, we'd be there one to two weeks and make our assessment of the safety and soundness of the bank and move on. So...
1: Okay, so let's talk a little bit about this, because I had no idea just how regulated banking was, right? Yeah. Like, when you look from the outside, yeah. you look at a bank and you say, there's a group of people that have money, they put it together, mm-hmm. and then they make decisions on who are we going to give money out to, and they're going to pay us for the, for the value of, of, um, of, of borrowing money, mm-hmm. and, uh, and then we make money that way. But the federal government and state government are deeply, deeply involved in banking, and almost to the extent that, to me, I feel like, what are we allowed to do? It, so, but when you showed up with your suitcases mm-hmm. on, on Monday morning, what are you looking at for a bank? I mean, like these are really serious moments for a bank when the examiners show up.
0: They are, but they shouldn't be. You know, we're, we show up, as a regulator, we'd show up every year, year and a half. Um, and it was just kind of a check. If, if a regulator told a banker something that they didn't know, that's when we were concerned, you know, because most of the time they're in the bank every day. They should know or they know what's happening in their bank and, you know, how their loan portfolio is looking or what their liquidity looks like. And if I was a regulator and I walked into a a bank and started seeing some problem loans and I went to the senior lender or whoever we were dealing with and they were shocked. That's when I got concerned. Because it's like, I shouldn't be telling you this. What
1: do you mean a problem loan? And why, why wouldn't these people know about it?
0: Um, maybe they're not monitoring it. Maybe they're just, you know, the person keeps making their payment. And we would only look really at commercial loans. We weren't looking at mortgages, that, those kind of things for the most part. Um, maybe they, they were just monitoring it and the borrower's making their payments. You know, we're, we're good. And and that's Yeah, what's that's wrong it. with that? Well, <laughs> it's all okay until you get their financial statements. And maybe you look at it and you realize, you know, their tre- their their revenues are down, their income's down, their cash flow is strained, or maybe, you know, there's something happening with the collateral piece. So there's all kinds of monitoring that has to happen as well once you make that loan, particularly on the commercial side of the business. You can't make it and forget it.
1: So the the uh that's super interesting, right? I, that the that it's not just can I get the it's not just the loan officer saying, mm-hmm. "Can I get the bank to make this loan?" because then the bank actually has to prove to the Federal Reserve and the state regulators, "Hey, look at this financial health of this company. They're still mm-hmm. they're still doing okay. They could get in trouble if 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 they're if they have too many loans out where the retail sales are going down or Yeah,
0: I mean, but it's really not, they're not proving it to the regulators. They're really just running their business and it's part of their responsibility to their shareholder and to, um, you know, the safety and soundness of that bank. The regulators are just there just to check because um, it is a highly regulated institution. There's an FDIC insurance sticker that that makes them... um, you know that gives them some protection, gives their depositors protection, and as a regulator, you're just making sure that they're doing what's right and and doing it in a safe and sound manner. Um, I never felt as a regulator that we were there just to just to check up. We weren't running the bank; they were running the bank on a day to day basis. We were just there to make sure everything was going okay. And when, but if you went in and you found a bunch of loans. Problem loans, it became real problematic for that institution because, as a regulator, you can do some stuff, or um, you know, require them to do things differently because you're there to protect the depositors. You're there to protect the safety and soundness of that institution.
1: So, what what are you allowed to do if you're a regulator? (laughs) So, let's let's keep going with this scenario. Maybe you can imagine a time when you found out that there was, mm-hmm. you know, trending down a series of loans. Now, what does Rita say? What do you what do? You, do?
0: Um, you know, it really depends on the severity. Um, you know, if you have just a few and you don't see a pattern of they're not paying attention or whatever, you know, you, you at, the end of the, at, at the end of the exam, you write up an exam report. You actually rate the bank on different components of their balance sheet. And... Um, you know, give them suggestions or give them items like, we want you to do this, we want you to do that, you know, and, and maybe it's improve your loan review, improve your receipt and review of financial statements, uh, you know, those kind of things. And if it's not too bad, you check up with them uh, in a year when you go back or another regulatory agency goes back, if If it's really severe, there are different things that the that the regulators can do from the standpoint of um, a written agreement with them. They can put you under like a like what they call a a memorandum memorandum of understanding where the board gets involved. So you as a board member, there's a lot of responsibility for making sure that there's um, processes in place and everything is is um you know working like it's supposed to so what a regulator can do is go to the board and say okay board you you need to improve the operation of this bank so like i said as you as a board member you're definitely um have some liability and have some responsibility and and like i said the The regulators, as it would get progressively worse. Let's say. um,
1: Does it get progressively worse? Like, did you see times when that happened, Uh, or is this all like in theory? You know, we have the playbook, (laughs) and
0: Um, most of the time you don't. Um, Most of the time, they address it, and you move on. Um, Other times, where you know, when we went through the banking crisis, you know, there was so many problems, and sometimes. There was nothing you could do about it there was the the economy was so rough that you know you just you you tried and tried, but there were so many things you know from a economic standpoint that made it difficult that it was hard for for banks to turn around and
1: where where were you during the banking crisis?
0: I was at um a bank here in st louis um it's since been sold, but it was um it was a uh um, Pulaski bank who had been around for 99 years. And, uh, I was, I was on that side fighting the good fight. So you you were, you
1: were like risk credit, Mm -hmm. that that side of things. Yeah. And so at what point were you like, uh, this isn't just a recession. This is, this is bad.
0: Um, you know, I think, I think we all knew it, you know, just from, um, what was happening in the nation as a whole, you know, with, uh, with different banks and all the pressure that, we, that that was happening in the economy as far as past dues and foreclosures, and
1: you saw that, so people could see this coming, like um, I mean, maybe not in time to stop it, but yeah. you, you saw that, yeah. the, that yeah. the roller coaster was headed down. Yeah,
0: yeah, I mean our, our and we didn't have um, luckily. We didn't have the severity of problems that a lot of banks had, but we, you know, I think every bank had issues to work out during that time period. But um, what you would typically see is your maybe your past dues crept upwards, or maybe as you did renewals on borrowers, uh, we were renewing a, a loan and we would get a new appraisal, and suddenly that value from three four years ago of let's say $500,000, you'd get it appraised and now it was $300,000. And maybe your loan was four, 400,000.
1: So now they're totally underwater. Yeah, so
0: then, yeah. And, and that was stuff that, you know, as a banker, you couldn't control what the value of that real estate was, but because of the market and how many problems there were, you just had to deal with it. And, um, you know, so that's where a lot of the problems came for. You know, kind of working it out was okay. Well, what do you what do you do now? You know, can you shore that up? Can that borrower pledge additional collateral or pay down the loan? Do they have the liquidity? That kind of stuff. So it, it was a lot of strategy behind every loan that that um, you got concerns with. You know, and sometimes it was. Uh, You know, how do you make this better? How do you get the the credit risk to an acceptable level? But um, I think every bank, um, you know, had their share of issues during that time. Um, Luckily, we, you know, we worked through them. We came out of it a okay. You know, there were a lot of other banks that that had the people show up in the black SUVs and shut them down. And so so
1: did you work at Pulaski uh, after you were a regulator? Uh So then were you calling your regulator friends? Um, and and saying like what do you see
0: (laughs) uh not not on an ongoing basis you know i i would uh certainly i keep in contact with some of them but uh the regulators were calling all the banks you know that (laughs)
1: was (laughs) you didn't have to go to them they came (laughs) to you
0: they definitely came to you and you know they were they were you know trying to get ahead of it and making sure the banks were on top of things and and that kind of stuff you know i um being a former regulator, I understand um, kind of what their mission is, and it 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 wasn't to shut down all these banks. It was to make sure that that they could make it through through this um, through the recession and come out the other end. And, and like I said, we did. Uh, not all of them did. So.
1: And what, what what happens when a bank got shut down? So the, let's say the people came in and they said, mm-hmm. "Look, you you bank, you are underwater yourselves." Yeah. Then then what happens?
0: Um, most of the time they have another bank kind of in the wings to, to take over the deposits and sometimes work through some of the loans for them. There there was a lot of unique things that the regulatory agencies did during the recession to um, help work through all those problem loans. Some of it was, uh, they called it loss share arrangements, where the bank that acquired those assets worked with uh, you know, with worked with the FDIC to kind of work through the loans that were on the portfolio. Um, but most of the time, it, it, if a, if a regular has come and shut down a bank, that bank is not surprised. I mean, they know there's problems. They know they're, you know, out of capital. So it, it wasn't like a surprise. And as a banker in St. Louis or in um, anywhere, you knew what banks were on the bubble. Oh, you, know? you did. Oh, yeah. I mean, you could tell. Um, there's uh, there's some ratios that are public ratios that you could still get to this day. Um, that um, there was one ratio called the Texas ratio that became very very popular, and it was uh, the amount of non-performing loans. And O R other real estate owned as a as a percentage of O
1: R E is everybody yeah
0: does. yeah as a percentage of their equity capital, and if they had uh, if that number if that ratio creeped up to like say over hundred you knew that borrow that bank had a lot of problems, and so um, uh, that got a lot of play you know like what's the bank's Texas ratio and it was just really a percentage of how much how much of their capital was. In you know how how many bad loans they had as a percentage of the capital base, and so you know it was a, it's a ratio that is you can get on any bank still today. So
1: just by going and googling uh-huh. it,
0: yeah, you can find it. But it's um you know it, that became you'd see these banks with these high Texas ratios, and you knew they had tremendous problems. You know that they were likely trying to work through, but uh, It was no secret, I guess. And um, banking's a small, small community. So, (laughs) you know, you ended up kind of knowing what banks were were working through problems and stuff like that. So the
1: people that were in credit positions Mm -hmm. that had their bank go upside down, their Texas Uh ratio goes Mm -hmm. sideways, and it's the... They uh, either their bank gets shut down, they move on and they are shamed out of the industry or they, they get positions and, hey, that was a really expensive education that you um, just
0: got. No, I mean, they move on. The, the industry is, um, the, if, if they've got some banking experience, you know, uh, there's definitely a room for, for those types of uh, underwriters. Uh, most of the time, those folks would stay on with the bank that acquired them um and you know they would they would just ultimately make a decision whether they wanted to be with that institution but you know that underwriting knowledge um is uh is 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 pretty marketable for a lot of people so um it wasn't like they were shunned or anything like that uh, for the most part.
1: And so. what's the difference between what happened with community banks and what happened with, like, the giant banks, the, the Bank of America or Wells Fargo, those kind of things?
0: Um, so it's unfortunate. I Personally, I think. Um, so you have these mega banks that they would call too big to fail. Because it was a systemic problem. If a Bank of America failed, you had so many issues in the financial market. If a bank in small town USA failed... Um,
1: it's just going to okay. be relegated to that yeah, community. Yeah, it was
0: almost like too big to fail and too small to care. Oh. And, and that's, to me, you know, somebody that has been in community banks and um, involved in that space for so long, that, that's a problem. You've got the the government and you know the, the making sure these large institutions are are saved, but they're not saving the smaller ones you know so and I understand i mean those large institutions it is a systemic risk to the to the financial markets if they fail, but if you've got coverage. Of the government that you're always gonna bail you out because you're too big to fail, is that bank taking more risk? They know they're not gonna fail, you know. Are they taking more risk? And I think it's it's an ongoing issue for the industry that has to be addressed. And and there was a lot of regulations that came out after The recession, and some of those have been peeled peeled back since then. But some really, like which ones? Um, It hasn't been major. There was just a lot of consumer protection stuff, which was totally fine. Um, Some of those regulations uh, did require larger institutions to do some stress testing, different things like that. Those are still. And stress
1: testing is is when you go through the loan portfolio as though something has just happened, and you say. Th- like these 10, let's say these 10 businesses, they, they suddenly start failing. The land appraisal goes way down. Same thing. Yeah. How did the bank survive?
0: Well, uh, for a community bank, it's more or less like that. For a larger institution, they're really stressing the big picture. You know, okay. so they're doing a much more rigorous uh, stress test of, okay, well, you know, what does this bank look like under different scenarios? So it's it's much broader. It's much more complex. Um, you know, so, so that was required for large institutions to do as part of some of this regulation. But they still really never address the fact that there's these, these institutions that are really too big to fail. You know, so it's still out there. There's actually a merger that's happening now between a bank, SunTrust Bank in Atlanta, Georgia, and BB&T, which I, I think is in North Carolina, that that bank when they're combined um are it becomes another one that's likely too big to fail you know so it really hasn't addressed you know what they're doing um and I, I, I don't want to say they haven't done anything you know certainly they've done some things to try to make that um not an issue anymore but i don't i i still think it's it's really lopsided um you know, f- with that issue. So I- I'm interested, though, you know, you came into the banking world with no um, banking experience as far as being involved in one. Were you surprised at the level of regulation that that was there?
1: Yeah, I am. Uh, and, and I think that so, you know, our Our close uh, friend, Associate Travis mm-hmm. Liebig, and I, we've we've been very good friends for a long time. Uh-huh. So I've been with him along the way as he was moving up to becoming president of a bank, and we would talk a lot about regulation and how it worked. But it wasn't until I got on the board that I realized like there are the, the parameters under which you can operate are so restrictive. That in some ways you kind of look at other banks and say like, well, how are we different? Is it that we're changing our marketing strategy that's different? I mean, we can you can offer a little bit different on rates. Like, how do you differentiate it? And, and that was really like quite surprising for me because you look at from the outside, mm-hmm. you look at a bank and you think, well, they have all the money. They have all the power. But you have to clear so much through the regulatory bodies that it was really surprising. and And going back to your point about these larger and larger conglomerations, this is really similar to to what has gone on in biotech. Mm-hmm. And what I have seen is people want more protection. They say, GMOs are dangerous. we or we don't really know if they're safe or not. I don't uh-huh. I disagree with that, but that's what that's what the public perception is. So people add on more regulations. Then what ends up happening is, only the biggest people can afford to pay to get through all the regulations. Mm-hmm. So for example, in, in biotech, they would say, um, let's say it takes four years of regulatory trials to determine whether or not that that genetically engineered crop is going to be safe. Well, the politician says, you know what, I'm not re- going to require four, I'm going to require 12 years of regulation. And if each one of those years of regulatory trials is $10 million, you've just stacked $8 million more dollars. Or eight, I'm sorry if it's 10 million you just stack 80 million more dollars of regulatory cost under that, which means there's only this many companies that can afford to do that, yeah. so you just keep forcing uh, mergers to happen. And I'm watching that go on with banking. It appears yeah. as though,, yeah. after 2008, just let's keep putting regulations on, which means the little guys can't keep up with the regulatory costs, and so you have mergers of uh, you know, mergers of equals, yeah. and they just keep coming together. And then you end up having just a few very very large banks. Yeah,
0: and I—that's totally the same. You know, it's a, it's kind of the same phenomenon in banking as you described in the biotech world. You know, you you've got those systemic large institutions or large companies that that get protected, and then smaller ones don't. And you know, for me, coming from a community bank space, like that's a disconnect. You know, if I go back to my hometown, which is uh, central Missouri, Lynn, Missouri, um, there's only two community banks there. Bank of America is not going to go there. Wells Fargo is not going to go there. So how do those small towns get services? You know, and um, and then you
1: have, you have farm credit systems in there, mm-hmm. but those are only for the farmers. Exactly. So then you have the people that are living in the town yeah that are trying to do grocery stores and little shops yeah. and they just yeah. they don't have banking.
0: Yeah, and I, you know, I I I think it's super important, you know, for those small communities, but it's it's just as important for a town like St. Louis, you know, to have those community banks that uh you know, where the decisions are made locally and, um, you know, the board is local and they know what's happening in the town. You know, that
1: that actually, so, you know, <laughs> when Travis and I were first talking about, um, you know, a community bank mm-hmm. or or, or when, when he was bringing together the investors to get the bank, he would talk about, like, the value of community banking. And I would be like, well, what does that really mean? He'd be like, well, local decisions. And I thought, who cares, right? Like, you, you're just going to take you know, people that are locally good versus people that are nationally good. But it completely changes how you understand when a loan comes in, Mm -hmm. how how strong is this construction company? How new are they? Where are they building? Because you have people that literally are in those areas. And so if you make it so only the national banks can do it, you're, you're creating giant DMVs in a way I don't know I mean I don't want to be too disparaging yeah. because I'm sure there's benefits that I don't understand
0: for, sh- for sure you know and it, it I think there's a there's a place for all of them but um, you know there's there's some of this stuff that is is kind of lopsided but
1: uh, you know so speaking of that lopsided um, point of view I, my very first guest on the podcast is a man named Tim Hausler and he during the interview uh, had an idea that he said he put forward to the Fed and they they looked at him a little sideways. I don't know if you heard the I interview. Saw that. So so <laughs> he so his idea was, if you want to stop too big to fail, you have FDIC insurance. So what that is for anybody that's not aware is every single time you go in and open a savings account or is it, in, is it just savings or checking yeah, as it's well? Checking as well. So up to two hundred and fifty thousand dollars, if the bank fails, the government will guarantee that money. And so it, so, and you can open up as many of those two hundred and fifty thousand dollar checking accounts as you want, more or less, yeah. right yeah and so he said, "Well, how about instead of saying we're going to limit that, we want people to have those protections. How about any one bank can only be f d i c insured up to a half a billion dollars, five hundred million?
0: Mm-hmm. What do you think um i I think that's that's a way to get to what has been discussed, which is breaking these banks up into smaller chunks you know and and so that that's a means to an end and it it certainly may be be uh, a great means to an end you know because I think the goal was and a lot of the conversation was how do we break these banks up to where you know it's not this massive systemic issue if one of them has a problem. One or several of them have a problem. So um, th- that might be the, that might be a great way to facilitate that. Um, there's other people... You seem
1: to have a hesitation on no, this. You, you, don't, know, you don't seem I... to be fully behind it. So what, <laughs> no, what would you I say think, is your...
0: I think that might work. I think at the end of the day, they want to break them up. Or maybe there's...
1: Do you think they do? You think they really do want to bring it No,
0: I don't think they do. I think it's like Main Street versus Wall Street kind of stuff. Um, There's probably some people that do, but not everybody thinks that's the best way to go. So maybe it's um, you require additional capital or reserves or something like that for those large institutions that have that protection. You know, there's there's a lot of different views on how you get there, but um, the problem is I don't think is it really has never been addressed you know we're still creating those too big to fail banks and um although there are more requirements i think the risk is still there uh to some degree um you know that they that they could have that but like i said i I think his idea is interesting um I, I think some of this stuff is just gonna be really hard just because of of how, you know, the political environment, and the regulatory environment, and all that other kind of stuff. But but I think as bankers, you've gotta be aware of some of this, some of these things. It's really easy to get caught up in your day-to-day and worry about just your bank and what it's doing, but there's a much broader issues out there for the industry as a whole that uh, that everybody should be paying attention to so well
1: this is actually what prompted me <laughs> to say that or to, to invite you on the podcast is that um, and I don't think I'm talking out of school here uh, we'll edit it out if I am but <laughs> during our board meetings you come in and give updates and you actually write a newsletter essentially for the for the board packet well, uh, it's it's, a, it's an update. It's like, I don't know, maybe 20 pages long talking mm-hmm. about the economy and like how is the St. Louis region doing? How's that map yeah. nationally? And I, I've been making the case that we should turn this into a newsletter and mail it out. I but, don't
0: know about that. But,
1: but, uh, <laughs> but so... Y- that, that is an interesting component of banking that I also didn't understand because every business has to worry about what are national trends yeah. and what's going on in the region. But banking is like v- very much that way. It feels yeah. like you're trying to play baseball because you've got all these stati- th- th- via statistics or something mm-hmm. like Moneyball because yeah. you are really trying to look at numbers to say what is going to happen and how should we position ourselves? Yeah. Because if we wait too long and we are too risk averse then we don't make any money, mm-hmm. and the other banks do, and then they can grow and push us out of the market. Or, or on the other hand, if we get too much risk and we make too many bad loans, then we lose our capital and we're out of the game. Correct. So what are the numbers that right now you think, hey, people should be paying attention to these things?
0: Um, so here's the problem with some of that stuff, is it's data overload. There is Yeah, no doubt. There is so many statistics, so many opinions, so many uh, indicators out there that it can be overwhelming for anyone in any industry i personally i think um what what we've tried to do is zero in on you know a, a group of ratios or, or a group of economic indicators that that we pay attention to otherwise we're you know it's just it's just too much so the things that, that we include um, on an ongoing basis, or at least monitor, are things like unemployment trends, you know, what's happening uh, nationally with unemployment, what's happening in the St. Louis market, um, you know, if... And, and, and
1: right now, that number is, like, people can't even find yeah. good good enough at good employees, that yeah. there's, like, real pressure that that means wages go up, and
0: yeah. that, so that exactly. looks like a
1: pretty good number, yeah. right?
0: exactly, you know, and... and uh, And that's why it's like you kind of have to look at several of them because uh, it's, uh, you know, they might give you different signals, but it it may come down to an awareness issue that you just got, you just have to be aware of what's happening in that market because it can affect your bank, your borrowers, all that kind of stuff. But some of the other things that we look at are consumer confidence levels, you know, are they trending downward? Are they going up? Uh, We look at um, housing market indexes, so... It's kind of a confidence index for the housing, you know, the builders and the um, people building homes throughout the country. We look at purchase managers index. Which what is that? It is um, basically a manufacturing, more manufacturing type of index. And it's not, um, it's not the CEO that you go to and say, hey, how's your business? And he or she goes, oh, it's doing great. This is you're going to the person that buys the inventory to make the widgets, or that is making sure that they 've got the the things to produce their market and go, "Okay, well, how are you feeling you know and if the purchasing manager is like we're slowing down you know i'm i'm going to back off." That index will reflect that.
1: And who is going to make those calls? Who's calling up the purchasing person?
0: Um, you know, a lot of it is just, like, industry people, you know. So, like, the housing stuff is through a National Association of uh, Home Builders kind of thing. Uh, the purchasing managers are through, a uh, like, an institute for manufacturers. So, it's all national kind of uh, legitimate... Um, industries or organizations that monitor this but like I said you know if if a purchasing if all the purchasing managers that this organization surveys says you know I can feel it our business is down our 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 orders have trended down three months in a row you know I'm, I'm a here or my confidence is here that should tell us as a bank okay well you know do we want to look at our manufacturers? Do we want to reach out to those borrowers and say, hey, how's everything going for real? Yeah, you know, and get ahead of some of their issues. And why would
1: they tell you if they have problems? They should. But why?
0: Because if it's uh, your, your banker is not your enemy, uh, you know, they need to let their banker know if they have issues and um Because the banker might help. You know, they may come to the bank later and ask for, okay, well, you know, can we have a little relief on the payment? Don't wait until things are bad to let your banker know that. Because the last thing anybody wants is a surprise, you know, and that's why it's important to bankers to keep in touch with their borrowers and make sure that they know it. And a borrower that's not being full disclosure with a bank, uh, it's not going to it's not a relationship that as a banker, you want, you want that trust, you want that. um, um, I won't say a partnership, because that implies something different. But but as a borrower, you want a banker that understands your business, that's going to be there for you, you know, through thick and thin, you know, because it might might be tough, you know, if you've got a bank that uh, that's going to come down really hard and not work with you, you know, you're you're going to have a harder time. So, so. what does
1: that mean? so if a, if a banker is there for you during the hard times, mm-hmm. so to somebody that isn't taking out lines of credit, yeah. what what does that mean?
0: Um, it's It's maybe working with them to restructure their debt or to give them a little bit of, of relief when maybe they're they've got seasonality in their business, you know their business dries up during the summer months or something like that. And, um, it's just really working with that borrower rather than saying, okay, your numbers are down, get out of here, you know? And some banks, some borrowers at that point in time, they can't go anywhere, you know? And, um, some, sometimes that happens, you know, to where you just, you know, you, you just can't work with them any, anymore and you both go to your own separate corners and, and, uh, that's not the scenario you necessarily want, but, you know, you do want a bank if you if you are having a hard time that that will take the time to understand uh, what your issues are and maybe work with you uh, to to see if it can be resolved. If it's just a kind of a rough patch you're going through, um, I think you want a banker that that'll help you through that, and um, you know, hopefully you come out and everybody's fine. But
1: uh, so as as the person that's you know head of credit, you have an, um, a high pressure situation in that. I mean, your bank listens to you, right? And there are people that could be in a hard spot and you actually have to make the decision. Are they going to get out of this hard Mm -hmm. spot? Because if they don't, and I give them more leash then the people that trusted me with their money are not going to be repaid. And it's not like everybody that's involved in a bank can afford to lose that money. Correct. And so how do you manage the stress of that? (laughs) Is it something you think of as stressful?
0: Uh, for sure. Um, it's just kind of the nature of the beast, you know. Um, from a standpoint of lending in general, you know, you've you've got to, you've got every everybody always says, you know, I've never made a bad loan. You know, you never make the bad loans; they just kind of happen for you. But uh, um, it it is going to happen. It's the it's it's a risk game, you know. And and what you want is enough. Um, mitigation or enough to where you can get ahead of it and um, you're not always going to be right and you can't sit there and and um, you know dwell on that but you kind of have to be right most of the time or you you have to know how to maneuver stuff so
1: when at what point did you start realizing I I actually have the, like, real power here. I I don't mean that in, like, a, you know, (laughs) hoisting a sword above your head or something like that. But I mean, like, the power to change people's lives.
0: Um, You know, I think you go through, as a a whatever worker, you know, in in any industry, you go through different jobs and you find out what you're really good at. You know, whether it's on the sales side, whether it's on, you know... um, a more audit level side or detail side. And, and I think for me, um, you know, that's where I gravitated to was um, because I ended, I, I, I tend to think things through, maybe overthink from time to time. Yeah. Yeah. For example,
1: when I asked you to do this, you were like, sure, we'll do it in like a few weeks so I can think about what I was going to say. And I was like, no, no, you agreed we're doing it this week.
0: Yeah. I would have much rather overthought it, but, uh, but I, I, you know, it's, it's definitely one of those, probably the, the, the one time that I remember that I was like, whoa, you know, this did make a difference was at my first job. And I was new to kind of a credit officer role. And I was we were working. I was at the bankers bank and we were working with another bank. So I was bank, my our customers. There were other bankers you know, that were way more experienced than I was. And I was probably late 20s at the time. And um, they had approached us about about doing a particular deal, and I just couldn't get there. You know, I just, the numbers didn't work for me. I didn't feel good about the deal. And it was like, okay, I'm going to tell this banker with way more experience that I can't get comfortable with their deal. And that banker he he we ended up saying, you know, we can't help you with it. And he was like, totally get it. He sent me a note. It was probably 5 6 months later. And it, he was like, thanks for the no. Because it ended up that they didn't do the deal and it was it was a deal that they shouldn't have done. You know, so and that's why I kind of ended up with saying no to a borrower is not always a bad thing. You know, it's really us taking a look at it and going. You know, this, this may be too much leverage for you, and some borrowers appreciate that, and others, you know, take it personal. And it's really, it's it's really not that. You know, we just look at it from the standpoint of, you know, what what things are. You know, we think are going to work, and um, you know, decide there. So. so,
1: one of the things that sticks out to me about you, in fact, some of the f- very first times we met was your willingness to, to say no. Mm -hmm. Right. And, and um, I've, I've talked several times with various people on the podcast about this trait called agreeableness. Mm -hmm. Right. And so this is, you know, how likely are you to decide that I would rather the group get along? um, And I don't really care if we get to the correct answer versus I need to resolve this conflict and I don't care how much disturbance it makes. Uh Are you, you, I mean, Are you, where do you fall on that scale? 100 (laughs) being the most agreeable, zero being completely disagreeable.
0: Um, You know, I would hope I'm kind of in the middle. Um, I, but you've got to have an opinion. You know, I don't, uh, and and my opinion might be totally different than another person's, but I'm not, I would never encourage a credit, uh, an underwriter not to say anything. You know, and I've I've talked to people that have worked with me over the years, you know, and if I I charge them with underwriting a deal, and if they don't like it, raise your hand. You know, don't sit there and and take orders from um, somebody and just, you know, not think through it. You know, have an opinion, voice it. I think there's, you know, you can do it in a way that uh, certainly is is better um, received than, than other times, but I think, um, you know, inherently from a banking perspective, uh, there's always that that push and pull from the sales side and the credit side. And I think I've always worked in institutions with, with that valued that separation, that valued that um, push and pull from the standpoint of yeah, some, you know, you want to make the deal, but you've got to have that control. So uh, if I was, I, I, like I said, I've been fortunate to be in institutions that understood that balance. You know, if it gets out of balance and it's more about sales than it is about credit, that's when your decision, you know, maybe is is going to be uh, just do the deal.
1: You do, know? You, do you think people can learn to be more disagreeable or to raise their hand like that? Or is it yeah. something you either got it or you don't?
0: Um, I think they can either be encouraged to do it or not. Um, some people maybe never get comfortable with it. Those aren't the underwriters that I want. Okay. Yeah. And, um, but if there, there's been times where, you know, I've got to say, hey, it's okay. You know, like if you don't like something, I want to, I want you to raise your hand I want you to say something.
1: So and, are you disagreeable in other parts of your life? <laughs> I mean, would, would your family no. say no?
0: Um, I don't think so, but. Would maybe. your family,
1: would, I mean, if they, if they were listening to this, they would say, no, Rita, <laughs> she's always bringing up the, the problems and no. making sure we confront it. And
0: I think most people would just say that I've got an opinion. Okay. On stuff. And, um, I'm not afraid to voice it, you know? And if it's, if it's, um, if it's something that that is um, that I feel needs to be brought forward, that's part of my job. I'm not going to apologize for it and so um, and 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 like I said, that's from an underwriter standpoint. I want underwriters that bring to the forefront issues and and not just sit there and do their job and not ask questions. And I think you know, you've got to be in an environment that appreciates that, that encourages it, or else you do end up with people that are afraid to speak up, you know, or afraid to say anything. And, and I, I you know, I, there's a lot of differences in an organization from a diversity standpoint that that becomes pretty important to me personally. So, um, yeah.
1: Would you say that people feel like they can disagree with you? Um,
0: I would think so. I mean, the
1: reason I ask, so, <laughs> so I had a chemist on named, uh, Dr. Doug Salmon's, and, uh, and he's one of the most disagreeable people on the face of the earth. Like n- no joke. Uh, he's a chemist that has figured out, discovered all sorts mm-hmm. of interesting things. And, um, it took him the better part of four or five decades to figure out, that the reason that people didn't disagree with him was because he was so disagreeable that he didn't he didn't know and i I just think like you are an extraordinarily confident person, or at least that's the way that it comes off, and so i I'm just curious because I think you're <laughs> you're in a, you're in an interesting dichotomy, right You are saying I want people to disagree more mm-hmm. um I believe they can be taught that. You are already pretty disagreeable, so it would be hard to cultivate that. I don't know. I, yeah. I, this is I'm just thinking here.
0: Yeah, I, I just um, I just don't would would be real hesitant on um, kind of a group think kind of thing. It's okay for people to disagree. It, it's totally okay if I don't like a deal. I'm not gonna you know if if it if we're voting on a making a loan. If I can't get comfortable, I'm not going to vote on it just because the five other people at the, pa- at the <laughs> table says it's a good deal. You know, like like as, if,
1: as a member of the board of directors, I can say <laughs> that is awesome.
0: The, the deal might still get done, but I don't want to vote just because everybody else says yes. You know, there may be times where. You know, you talk through a deal and, and maybe somebody brings up a point that says, well, you know, what about this? I can be swayed for sure. Oh, really? For okay. sure. You know, um,
1: that's probably the key yeah. thing. Right. If you're super yeah. disagreeable, but that's because yeah. you're already convinced you're yeah. right. Yeah. yeah. Then no one will.
0: Yeah. I think you just have to listen. And uh, I might go into some of the meetings um, with, OK, I, I'm not comfortable with this or I want this. And then you, know, you talk through it, and, and I, I will get to the point where I was like, okay, I can, I can get there on this deal. So, um, and I think it just takes open communication and respect for all the people at the table and all their opinions to get to that, that point. But I, I, um, I don't have um, you know, a real issue with somebody with somebody disagreeing with something, um, everybody should have their opinion. And um, like I said, I, as an underwriter, I'd rather have an underwriter voice it than keep it inside and never say anything about it.
1: You know, the, I you were asking earlier about me being surprised about uh, regulation. Uh-huh. I would say the bigger surprise that I have is how much of banking is relationships. Mm-hmm. And, and you have this really interesting... Um, kind of tension, a dichotomy there of you want to be able to have people that can, that, that can account for, I know this person I, they're just uh-huh. going through a rough time. They're just, uh, you know, th- this is their situation. They've got a lot of potential versus these are cold, hard fact numbers mm-hmm. and bringing together inside of a bank, the people that can balance those two forces yeah is really really difficult
0: sure. yeah, yeah, but it's essential in, in working you know and in, in being successful because it all really does come down to relationships amongst people at the bank or any business you know your relationships with the customers and then your relationships internally you know so it's um, it's definitely not a transactional kind of business um,
1: do you do anything to keep yourself objective there? I mean I would imagine that the that in your role, you know, you go to enough client mixers and meet enough clients. That would start yeah, changing your opinion.
0: It can. Um, it, and sometimes it's helpful. Sometimes meeting that borrower for me, it it makes more sense. But but definitely I don't I don't want to to make a loan because oh man, I I liked I met them and I really liked them. It still has to support you know, the numbers have to be there. And I think when you're in that sales role, you definitely have more of a personal relationship. Um I I, I don't think in my role that that um I, I do have to separate that and really look at it a more kind of factual basis. But um, you know, it, it's it is a balance. And, uh, you know, if, if we all had a crystal ball, <laughs> it'd be fantastic, but you don't, you know. And, and uh, it always, everybody always says, like, you know, whenever, whenever you get in a situation where you're sitting there going, okay, should I really make this loan? You know, and, and I've done this. It's like, okay, if it was my own money, would I make this loan? And uh, sometimes when you ask people that, they... Does it uh,
1: always make them more conservative?
0: A lot of times. Yeah. Yeah. Because it's like you're... I'm not... I'm loaning the bank's money out. I'm not loaning...
1: It's not going to come out of your paycheck. Exactly.
0: But it's like... It's a question that you have to ask yourself. You know, would I give this borrower money? And if I sit there and go, no, then my vote at the table needs to be no or I need to, you know, make sure that deal doesn't happen.
1: In that regard... How do you incentivize uh, a credit officer? Because your job is not—I mean, it's not have that pipeline no. be as big and full as possible. So, how do you? How, how are how are you incentivized, or how are other people incentivized um, to to do to do right by the bank?
0: So, um, if you're going to measure a credit officer, it comes down to some asset quality metrics within your portfolio. Um, maybe it's a past dues level. Um, Loans, there's, every bank has rating systems, you know, to where you rate the risk of your loan portfolio. And it, and the regulators use a rating system as well. So they'll come in, you know, whenever they come in for their exam, and they'll rate your loans. And so um, if you get too many rated in the bad categories, you know, you're in trouble. And I think as a credit officer, I should be held accountable to those types of metrics. You know, if 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 I'm making decisions and those those metrics are indicating that our portfolio quality is getting worse and worse and worse, we got to figure out what's going on. Wow. So, anyway, so I can't, yeah, I can't, I'm not measured on how much business I bring in because it's none. Um, but there's still accountability that, that I've got to, I've got to make sure that the loan portfolio is graded properly, that we're recognizing the risk in it and that we're addressing it. And uh, so there's a lot of ways to to do that, but it's primarily through, you know, kind of credit quality metrics.
1: So let's make it real for the listeners in terms of if they were starting a Mm -hmm. new business, we'll just imagine that they've figured out how to make a new hot Uh sauce and it's really good and they want some... Money to be able to take it from their, their kitchen production to factory style. Mm-hmm. What are you looking for as a credit officer to determine? Yeah, this is a good choice. We should we should make uh-huh. this decision.
0: Um, so there's a lot of things that a borrower would want to do. You know, get the financials in order. Um, and what does that mean? Um, just make sure that the like uh, if it's a startup that they've got you know their personal financial statement accurate encompassing all their assets, that they filed all their tax returns and those are all up to date, that they've got a business plan where, they un- where it, it can evidence to a banker that they understand their business, they understand the risk, they understand how to produce that hot sauce from ingredients to the day that it put goes on the shelves for sale. So a lot of thought needs to be put into that and that's what a banker will expect I think it's helpful, and I've had conversations with um, different people that knew I was in banking and had their own business, uh, friends of mine, that um, you know, they would ask me different things about, well, how does that, you know, how does it work on your side? And I think that's important to understand from the standpoint of a borrower. You know, like, what are they, you know, what are we really looking at? And um, you know, they call it like the five C's of credit. And um, it comes down to character, capacity.
1: What does that mean, capacity?
0: Um, that's basically their, their ability to uh, make the loan payments, you know, and uh, the capacity for them to carry the debt. Okay. Um, the other ones are uh, capital, uh, collateral, and conditions, which is kind of what the industry is doing. And so, um, you know, you can debate, maybe there's a couple other C's out there, but even if you go to an institution that does, like, artificial intelligence and does credit scoring and all that kind of stuff, some of those components of those five C's will be built into their models. You know, the character part of it um, is largely met- measured by an a individual's credit score, you know, how they pay their bills you know, do they pay on time? Have they applied for a bunch of credit recently? Um, Are they maxed out on all their credit cards? Do they have a bunch of installment debt out there, you know, in relation to their income? You know, so um, a lot of the models that are built in large institutions and some small institutions take those factors into account. So there's, there's part of me that from a credit perspective is you can have all these tools, which are fantastic for the industry, but it does come down to some pretty, pretty basic stuff on, on how you as a banker uh, go through your underwriting process and what you measure and, and what you really spend some time on. And, and um, like I said, you know, when I talk to people about, well, you know, what is the bank going to look at, I end up always coming back to like those five C's and what, uh, you know, kind of how we would look at it from um, an underwriting So standpoint. let's talk
1: about that, that first C, the character one. Yeah. And this actually is a question that comes from my brother who is... Um, very uh, attuned financially, uh-huh. and and really despises debt, so uh-huh. pays for everything as much as he can great. in cash. Well, it's great up <laughs> until he goes to get a mortgage, mm-hmm. right? Because if he if he hasn't been putting money on credit cards and uh-huh. he doesn't have that score, what do you as a banker say to somebody like him that says like, you know, I go to get a, I, I have a multi million dollar business I'm running. I've I've uh-huh. I, I own everything I use. And yet I go to get a mortgage and the banks say, mm, your credit score isn't very good because you don't have any credit. What do you think of that?
0: Um, I've seen it before. Actually, my mother had the same problem.
1: <laughs> <laughs> okay.
0: And, uh, you know, it was uh, it was funny because she was probably, I don't know, 80 at the time and had never had credit. Mm-hmm. And all she wanted was a credit card and could not get one, you know? So it happens. Uh I guess if I would see, see that there's other ways that, that we could do, okay, well then give me a personal financial statement, show me your credit or your checking account history. Maybe we'd we'd get some statements from how they handled, uh, you know, just their basic day-to-day checking account. So there's other ways to do it. It's very rare though, that you wouldn't have a credit score, you know? So, um, and sometimes it doesn't tell the whole story, but um, it's certainly a basis or a, a factor that can be used because it is available for everybody and it, um, you know, it does give an indication of, you know, how they pay their bills. So there's, there's ways to get around it. Um, you just kind of have to think through kind of what your options are, so... So
1: we've kind of talked um, on, the, on the surface and about how loans get made uh, and the, the Fed. But one of the things that I don't know very much about because I've only seen it in the abstract is what happens when somebody doesn't pay their loan and can't pay their loan?
0: Um, that, well, I mean, if they cannot pay um, or they won't pay, you know, there's there's really no choice from a banker perspective, we have to get our money back, you know, and we will. Um, A lot of times if that happens, you know, there, there is an element of, you know, is it a borrower that's going to work with you? You know, is it a borrower that's trying to get out of it and you want to give them a little bit of leash to, to to, him or her, a little bit of leash to kind of turn their business around, you know, if it gets to the point where it's like, it's never going to happen, or that they're not willing to do that, you know, we've got to kind of assess where we're at, you know, is, you know, will our collateral cover the debt outstanding? If it will, then we're, if the borrower is not willing to sell it, then we're going to have to take legal action, foreclose on that. So you're saying, so when
1: you're talking about collateral, you're saying if they have, let's say like the the hot sauce example, mm. if they have a, a, a warehouse that they store all that in and they own the warehouse and the land, um, they've put that up that if they can't pay their loan, then w- the bank would get possession of that Correct. and then be able to sell it. Or Yeah.
0: yeah. Okay. If, if, uh, if we had uh, that as collateral. Now, if we just have the hot sauce collateral, we might be in a little bit of trouble, but <laughs> uh, um, yeah, it just depends. But that's part of that underwriting process. You know, if I'm going to take on that risk do I need more collateral to get me over the risk that we're taking on that new venture? Or, um, you know, do we feel good about this borrower's ability to get outside income or whatever to, to work out of their issues? So, Have you had to
1: take possession of somebody's property? For sure.
0: Well, for sure. It, it, definitely. <laughs> and it's not a good, you know, you don't want to do it, but... I we still work for a business that's owned by shareholders and our job is to get our money back. And uh so definitely. I mean it, it, we've we've foreclosed on over the years. I we've foreclosed on all kinds of property. We've we've taken back What's uh,
1: the most unusual thing you've you've gotten back or gotten as called? Um
0: out? so probably uh we got back uh, a motorcycle shop. So that one was a little tough because we had motorcycles and then um, accessories and um, clothing. So that one was a little bit different. And kind of
1: a niche market and yeah. probably one that you're not an expert yeah, in. Yeah,
0: exactly. So that one was a little tougher. Um, you know, sometimes you'd get back properties that were in terrible shape. You know, so that presents challenges, uh, you know, because you've got to figure out, OK, who's your buyer for this stuff? You know, we, we're, we're not in the real estate business. We take it back and then we want to get it out. So um, and, and uh, the, the good thing about banking is, you know, you work with so many different businesses and so many different customers that there's Always you know all kinds of stuff it's not always going to be real estate, it may be a piece of equipment, it may be a vehicle um, who knows it could be um you know a a unique kind of vase or whatever I've heard of that happening as well you know you you lend on a on a collectible item um it's nothing you want to do but sometimes it happens. Uh we never took back a vase, but uh <laughs> it it uh you know it 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 was um uh, just different things. So
1: so what is one of the funny things about banking right now is that people don't really go to banks anymore. Correct. I mean like r- regular people, you know, their their check gets direct deposited. Yep. They very rarely need cash. Maybe you need, you know, 20 bucks throughout mm-hmm. the week. What do you see as the future of of banking in a world where people don't physically go to banks?
0: Um, That's a challenge. Uh, You know, for for banks, they've just got to make sure from a technology standpoint that we can accommodate that borrower um, and give them the services they need. It still comes down to a lot of of times that relationship standpoint, particularly on commercial borrowers because... um, that you're not gonna do all that and and never talk to your bank or you you shouldn't want to. Um, I have a checking account at the bank that, <laughs> that I work with, but my main checking account is still at my hometown bank. I never I haven't been inside that bank, I bet in 15 years. But that's my primary checking account.
1: I mean, it's just such a pain to yeah. go through and change yeah. that stuff. Yeah. Like... But
0: but it's like they've got the products that, you know, from an online perspective and those kind of things that uh, that take care of me. And I think for banks, you know, we're not going to go backwards. You know, but people are not going to start coming into banks. It's, it's just uh, um, making sure that your products and your security levels and... Uh, All that kind of stuff can facilitate that sort of um, banking, those banking needs.
1: (laughs) One of the interesting effects of having the FDIC saying, hey, if if there's the little sticker as you walk in, Uh um, all all the way up to $250,000, then as far as the the individual with the checking and savings account, which bank they're at, Uh doesn't matter so much, right?
0: It, It doesn't. I mean, and that's the part, that's what's tough about banking is it's a commodity. Your checking account at XYZ Bank, there's probably a similar checking account at another bank, you know, and I think it comes down to, you know, uh, convenience, um, who you want to bank with, uh, maybe relationships, those kind of things. So it's, it's tough as a banker to sometimes differentiate yourself from all the other banks out there. And, but but you think, did
1: differentiate earlier. You were saying there is a difference between big banks and community it, banks. And what would you say that is?
0: Um, I think it's – and that, that's where you've got to make sure your story gets out. I think that that from a community bank standpoint, it is about, you know, you're there in the community, your board's in the community, decisions are made locally – um, and it it really is about a bank helping a community and helping small businesses, large businesses thrive in that market and understanding that market. And I think, you know, I I, I don't want to disparage large institutions. Oh, go because ahead. There's <laughs> oh, maybe I will. Uh, but there's a lot of stuff that 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 they do equally as well. But from my standpoint you know, I want a bank with a bank in my community. And if you look at the St. Louis market, and you've probably heard Travis say this many times, there's, over the years, um, there's been a lot of locally owned banks that have been acquired. And there's there's a lot of great banks in St. Louis, but over the years, a lot of that have has left St. Louis. You know, so it, so it's like, you know, I want to see local institutions thrive because I think I think it's great for that community. Um, if you know it, it's it's great for the industry as a whole that everybody's doing okay, but I you know maybe I maybe it's the underdog you know, root for the little guy kind of thing, but I still want to see that local community bank do great things in their community and, and really, really get out. And for a borrower, you know, all the decision makers are right there. The, you know, they're not going to another state or another country, um, you know, that, that owns that bank that, are, that is, you know, making their decisions from a strategic standpoint. The strategic uh, decisions for our community bank are made in that community. Sure.
1: Well, that was, you know, I had a, a dairy farmer on and we talked uh-huh. a little bit about this. I spent the better part of my late teens, 20s, uh, all the way up until my 30s thinking, I want to go change the world. And the way that I do that is I go as far away from wherever I am right now because the world is out there. Uh-huh. And the thing that woke me up was Travis actually showing me, hey, if you have um, the ability to gather up people's money within a community Mm -hmm. and then responsibly distribute that out to various businesses, you get to play a major role in seeing whether or not that community can thrive. And it, it was really like he was offering me a chance to make a way bigger difference then I was going to make digging wells in Africa uh-huh. or playing some political game at the World Bank, like which is not really a bank. I mean, it is, but <laughs> we we'll won't go into that. But um, th- that's so when we talk about the the difference between the large bank and the small bank, I, you know, they're they're just a business. I don't yeah. have any ill will towards Bank of America or Wells Fargo, but they are playing a very different game. One is. I'm gonna go harvest a commodity in this community. If I can extract money, I will. And if I can't, I won't. Which is the same thing that a community bank is doing, except for literally every single person there lives in that community.
0: Correct. Correct. And you know, I I, I don't wanna like bash large We'll just make that assumption. <laughs> yeah.
1: Rita but does not want to bash yeah, the large banks. But it,
0: yeah, it's true. You know, and, and like I said, I've I have an affinity for community banks and what they do uh locally. And what kind of impact they can make on people's lives. Because I've seen it so many times, you know. And like what? Just if, if I go back to my hometown, you know, those people that want to buy homes, that, that want to have a business in that small town are not going, you know, they don't have many options. They're not going to go to Bank of America. They're not, and, and Bank of America doesn't want them. You know, so so they've been able to be served by a community bank where they see the people every day out and about in their community. They probably know the kids, they know the parents and and that kind of stuff. And it 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 does, you know, it it impacts people's lives and it makes them, um, you know, it gives them uh, businesses that thrive and homes to live in and and, um, you know, those kind of things.
1: I was uh, in, a, in a meeting one time where somebody pointed out that the automation that's going on in banking has an impact that is somewhat unexpected in that it used to be that the, the way you brought up a banker was they started out handing out cash at mm-hmm. the teller and then they moved their way up. But the more automation you have, you start with all those easier jobs and then you just keep moving up the, the executive ladder and automate as much as possible. Yeah. Do you think that's true?
0: Um, yeah, you know, it's definitely changed over the years. And if, if you're a banker that doesn't embrace automation, efficiencies, um, technology, um, it's going to become more and more difficult. What do you mean
1: by embrace? How can somebody embrace that Um, automation?
0: You know, not fight it, you know, it's, um, it's just the way the business is, is heading. You know, if, if, uh, You can't keep pace at the level of every other bank if you've got inefficient processes, if you've got systems that are so dated, because there's there's banks out there that are way far ahead of you. And sometimes for a borrower or for a customer, it comes down to speed. You know, how fast can I get this? And if um,
1: so, what's automated? Like the collection of the credit reports, or um,
0: or? it could be anything. You know, I think there's there's banks out there. You know, you look to automate. You look for efficiencies in anything. You know, is there a way to make that a little bit uh, more efficient? Is there a way to credit score people or to automate some of your underwriting to where you can get decisions to customers really quick? You know, so it's those kind of things that. That I think every bank, you know, they've got to determine where they're going with it and if it's, um, you know, a kind of a short-term goal for them or long-term where they go. But certainly, you know, the, the technology from the standpoint of even as a, a bank customer has changed, you know, um, the amount of the times that I write a personal check is nothing compared oh, yeah. to I where mean, it was. Th-
1: and that was always the reason that they gave us that we had to learn cursive was that we, had to be, <laughs> we wouldn't be able to write a check if you couldn't write cursive, which one wasn't true because you can write one in print. <laughs> and second of all, like that's all gone to the, the, the side. So if somebody is thinking about different careers, mm-hmm. do you learn banking in college? What do, you, what do you think is the right path to be, to be a, a great banker?
0: Um, certainly a business background helps. You know, um, from, just from the standpoint of there's there's a lot of accounting, there's a lot of financials and, and that kind of stuff, whether you're on the lending side or, or some of the other depository side. Um, but but I would say any more, you know, banks, you know, from a technology standpoint and uh, different areas, there's a lot more diverse opportunities for people. Um, what I would say is, is – um, you know particularly on the lending side the, the it, it you do get exposed to a lot of different businesses and a lot of different things so you know you if if somebody wants kind of a routine this is what i do all the time uh, probably probably there's some positions in banks that that really won't accommodate that but Really? Uh,
1: I didn't expect you to say that.
0: Really? I mean I there's mean, it, there's it, some it's, there's some jobs that that maybe are a little bit more structured but you know, certainly on the lending side, it's, it's not because you don't know whether you're going to have a manufacturer come in uh, and ask you for a loan, a home builder come in and ask you for a loan, or, you know, some business that you never even knew was out there. So it's, it's a lot about learning how businesses operate and, you know, learning how borrowers make money, you know, that that's essential, at least on the lending side, you know, so, um,
1: so could somebody leave their current job being, you know, head of accounts receivable at a, at a plastics factory and then jump over to banking?
0: Sure. You know, there's always a learning curve. Um, but if they've got, um, an interest, you know, they probably couldn't come over at certain levels, uh, you know, there's always that learning curve of just how the bank works and and how to underwrite and how to talk to customers and those kind of things. But uh, um, there's a lot of different backgrounds that I think could help. Um, but certainly if, if you've got a business background or an accounting background... Um, it's, it's a great business, so.
1: And if, uh, if you were giving advice to a young person in college about, uh, getting into banking regarding how they use social media, <laughs> what do you, what do you think? What do you think of the social media and banking?
0: Um, I would just tell them to be careful, just like with any, anything, you know, from the standpoint of, uh, you know, just don't post anything out there that you, that you don't, uh, want, uh, want everybody to read, you know, so, uh. Um, no different advice from there that that I think you wouldn't have in any other industry i I do think it's important um, for young people to uh, maybe get a couple mentors that can help them you know kind who of, are your mentors um you know there 's been different ones over the years you know some of them have been um, um bosses that i 've worked with um, I, and i'll, I'll I, uh, there was a guy by the name of Bill Donius who I think you've met Bill mm-hmm. um, and um, he was president of Pulaski and he probably didn't know he was as much of a mentor to me as what he was. Um, not only did he know banking, but he had a style about him and a rapport with people that you were just like, "Wow, you know and it's that kind of stuff that uh, you know you want to pick up uh, from from people that that you're exposed to like, you know, how did you handle that? You know, at the time I was coming up in banking, it wasn't something that was really talked about. You know, I think it would have been great to have somebody that, that you can go to and go, okay, well, how did you get here? You know, it would have helped tremendously. So I would encourage, you know, anybody thinking about getting into really any industry, and definitely banking to you know reach out to somebody that's in the industry and talk to them about it, you know what did they do to get to where they are you know and and what um what tools did they use, what training did they do, you know that kind of stuff, so i think it I think it is important for any young person to to have that relationship with somebody that they can go to and just ask for advice and maybe it's that they maybe it's their parents maybe it's somebody within the industry um but i, I think you know having somebody to talk through those things uh, would be helpful so
1: so if people wanted to get a hold of you where would they find you
0: I am at Saint Louis Bank. Uh, our office is in town and country, Missouri. And uh again Which is just
1: outside of Saint Louis. That's For people right, that don't know right. it's like the that's suburb of right, St. right St. on
0: highway forty. So forty, I think. So um uh, anyway it's um Small community bank. I'm there every day. And if you want to apply for a loan, Vance, or a deposit account, you just let me know. uh, You can reach me. I'm on LinkedIn. Um, My email address is... uh, I'll put it in the show notes. Yes. Yes. Okay. So... um, so definitely, we, we definitely like to help anybody that, uh, that is looking to expand their business. So Well,
1: great. Thank okay. you <laughs> so much for stopping by. I know you were very nervous about this, but you did excellent, and <laughs> I appreciate you, you being so open. So okay. thank you very thank much. You. Well, that's it for this week's interview with Rita Kuster of St. Louis Bank. If you enjoyed this, I hope you will hit the subscribe button or consider giving us a review. Those five-star reviews have really opened up the number of people that are finding us on places like iTunes. The other way that people encounter this podcast is on social media. And one place that I am often in is Twitter. There's two people I wanted to mention this week that are particularly interesting and caught my eye. I've been speaking with both of them for several years. The first one is a man named Carl Lippert. Carl is an ag tech kind of wonky guy, and he uh, he's always got his finger on the pulse of what's new, and he's not afraid to say things that are a little bit countercultural. So he'll be talking about everything from blockchain to uh, smart barns and everything in between. And the thing that I like about Carl is that he sometimes will agree with you and and support your point of view, and then sometimes he'll have a counterpoint, and he'll want to start a discussion with you. He's always great, and he is Carl Lippert, L-I-P-P-E-R-T, on Twitter. And the other person is a breeder slash geneticist from out in California. She and I have known each other because we worked together in the past, but now stay in touch on Twitter. Her name is Kate Crosby. And Kate and I have developed a friendship um, and it's gone much deeper over the last few months because each week I send her photos of these small tomato seeds that I've been growing all the way up into being tomatoes. Kate has a very interesting perspective and has just moved into a new job where I think she's been using Twitter quite a bit more. So if you'd like to find somebody that knows a lot, and I mean a lot, about breeding plants and uh, interesting facts on on uh, genetics, then I recommend you talk with Kate Crosby. She can be found, and this is kind of an unusual Twitter feed at underscore Kate, K A T E, underscore Crosby, C R O S B Y, underscore. So I'll leave that in the description, and I hope you'll go check them out. They are people that are fun and interesting, and it's a good way to get into an entirely new network on Twitter. I hope you'll come back next week because we're going to have a fantastic interview. I sat down with Tony Sansone III, who uh, started a cannabis company out in Las Vegas and was able to sell it just last year for $22 million. We get into the cannabis industry, what he thinks are jobs on the horizon, and even what he thinks will be the impacts on the country as we move more and more towards federal decriminalization. Uh, He's a great conversation and I really hope you will be around for it. So we'll see you next week.